Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. I think we have a pretty good show in store for you. I'm going to be sharing with you how the Gospel of Mark fits into what I call the big story. Last week, I shared with you both the why and the how to share the Sunday readings from the Gospel of Mark in your home with your family, all of this requiring less than 15 minutes a week. Now, this week, I want to share with you how the Gospel of Mark, which you'll be sharing this church year with your family and also what you'll be hearing in the readings in Mass, how that fits into the big story of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean by the big story. First of all, I'd like to share with you one of the most important things that I've ever learned about the Bible. This might seem very simple, but it's very important. It's simply this. The Bible is a big story. What I mean is that all 73 books of the Bible and all the parts of those books work together in forming one grand story. Now, I want to share with you a secret. God has sent every person into this world already pre-wired, sorry for the technological description of your humanity, but he sent you into the world pre-wired to welcome and to listen to a good story. And I can absolutely assure you that your children are already predisposed to listen and give attention to a good story. And very often as we approach the Bible, obviously we have to approach it in parts, looking at a verse, maybe a paragraph, maybe a chapter at a time, but it's important that we try to put all of those different parts and see how they form this grand picture, this big story. I'd like to share a second secret with you. I can't prove this, but I believe the big story in the Bible is the very best story of all, and it's a big part of the reason why God has designed us all to be drawn towards a good story, because he wants us to embrace his big story. So the goal of this broadcast, I'm going to try to outline the major storyline of the Bible, and then how the Gospel of Mark fits into this storyline. And if I have enough time, I also wanted to share briefly how you personally fit into this big story as well. That's a, that's a pretty big uh, agenda for a short broadcast, so let's go. I'd like to present to you the Bible, the big story of the Bible in three acts. Imagine a play with three acts within a play. The first act is the opening two chapters of the Bible. God comes to us in these opening chapters, and it's not always recognized as the sovereign, kingly, creator, the one who creates all things out of nothing, obviously has dominion over everything he has made because everything that exists, from little particles of atoms to human beings to animals to oceans to whatever it is, they all owe their existence to him, 
sovereign creator. And when God got done with everything, it says on the seventh day he rested. Maybe we misunderstand that too frequently, thinking that, wow, God got really tired creating the universe. You know, if you're omnipotent, you don't get tired making a universe. The word in Hebrew to rest literally is trying to describe God as a king resting on a throne. In other words, he's enthroned over his creation. After he made everything, he asked all of us as human beings, he created us as vice regents or vice kings, under kings, to rule and reign his justice on earth, but to be loyal subjects, he commands one day in seven to come and worship him as the great king. Everything went fine, so you turn the chapter to Genesis 3, and we find sin. Sin is a rebellion against this great king's rulership, and when Adam and Eve sin brought original sin to the world, it threw everything out of whack. Uh, immediately, it, you can see that the relationships in marriage were thrown out of whack. Uh, Adam started blaming Eve for his sin before God. And you're wondering why you have ups and downs in marriage? Well, it started right here. When marriage, the human relationships were thrown out of whack. Family relationships were thrown out of whack. Our relationship to God was thrown out of whack. Even our relationship to the natural order. God meant the creation just to bring forth fruit and food and abundance. And instead, he says, now you're going to toil, you're going to sweat, you're going to have weeds and insects and everything trying to bother the natural order. It's out of whack. It's not the way it was made. And then even the relationships between peoples and nations. I mean, one of the most horrendous things that goes on in the world are murders, individual murders, and then terrorism on a wider scale and wars. All of this is this totally out of sync, out of whack world that was created by Act Two, the original sin. And then the third act in the Bible, immediately after original sin, starting about halfway through Genesis chapter 3, and it runs all the way through all the rest of the books of the Bible, right through the end of the book of Revelation, Act 3 is redemption. Now, redemption we often think of as only God saving our soul. Now, that is a huge part of redemption, but as human beings, we have bodies. So redemption covers our bodies. In fact, redemption covers everything that was thrown out of whack in Act 2. In other words, he's going to restore marriage. That's why the first miracle Jesus performed. It was in the midst of a wedding. He tried to show he wanted to do something for marriages and for human relationships. He wants to restore the order of nature. Listen to this. Redemption includes redeeming all the creator king made in Act 1. Everything. You see, God isn't like, well, I'm going to take their souls and go to heaven, and I'm going to take my ball and go home, and Satan can have the world. That's not how it works. Act 3 includes a new heavens, a new earth, harmony, righteousness, fruit in abundance. Everything works. It's back in sync, so to speak, with the great king. 
that got thrown out of whack in Act chapter 2. So Act 1, the sovereign king creator. Act 2, rebellion to this great king. And everything going haywire. Act 3, redemption, which includes everything that was established by the creator in Act 1. The creator is going to redeem everything and everyone who willingly submits to his great rule. Okay? Now, in these three acts, there are two key figures in the Bible that, honestly, it's close to impossible to understand almost anything in the New Testament apart from these two figures, because what's happening in the New Testament is a fulfillment of promises given to two men. Now, these two men are, first, Abraham, and the second is David. And you should know about when these two men lived. Abraham lived about 2000 BC. David lived about 1000 BC. And you can get a big tip off that the entire New Testament is about the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham in 2000 BC and the second promise made to David in 1000 BC. This is the big picture. Everything going on in the New Testament is about the fulfillment of these, and you can get a big hint of this by reading the very first verse of the New Testament. What does it say? Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what's going on in the New Testament. Now, what were these promises made? The promise to Abraham the father of the Jewish people, was also a promise that all peoples on the earth would be numbered among his descendants, all peoples, all nations, okay? And that was a promise made to Abraham. It's in the book of Genesis about 2000 BC. We're going to talk about how this works out in a minute. Then the second man that was receiving these great covenant promises was David. And David was the king of Israel, and he was given kingly promises for his descendant. And his descendant would become the Messiah, a great king, just like David was. And because these two promises are dynamically interconnected, the promise to David, king of Israel, that his descendant would be a great king. Because it's connected to Abraham, it meant that he was not only king of the Jews, but king of the whole world. So you have these two promises interacting. And Jesus is going to come and fulfill everything promised to Abraham and David. And just give you an idea of what's going on. The book of Acts and what St. Paul does in the book of Acts is entirely incomprehensible apart from understanding this big story. We, we find Paul in the book of Acts absolutely furious at St. Stephen and other early Christians who are taking this Jewish gospel, so to speak, this Jewish faith, and sharing it with Gentiles. And he just, 
he just blew a stack and basically had papers wanting to take these people doing this because he thought it just threatening to the very root of his Judaism. He wanted to put him to death. And of course, Christ stopped him. And he went off for about 14 years, did some pretty intensive Old Testament studies, and came to the realization that rather than Jesus and this Jewish faith being limited, that actually Jesus came and he was inaugurating the fulfillment of what had been promised a thousand years before to David and 2,000 years before to Abraham. Abraham's promise was not just the Jews would be numbered countless among his descendants, but the Gentiles too. And so, you know, I, I, I basically say, well, you look at St. Paul, and it, it seems like he was a madman. Never was a person so consumed with a mission. Tell me any person in human history who basically single-handedly transformed an empire. And that's what St. Paul did when he realized what was happening in his day and how it fit into the big picture was being realized he let loose because he knew that even though it had been 2,000 years since that promise to Abraham, the Jews are so remarkable. They just hang on like a pit bull to a a promise from God. And St. Paul realized that what was happening, and so he launched out in a Gentile empire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's talk about David. David, the Jewish king, was promised a descendant who would become a great king. And because the promise to David is connected with the promise to Abraham, we're talking about universal kingship, this descendant of David. And again, from the first verse of the New Testament, the New Testament isn't trying to make a big mystery out of everything. It's pulling back the curtains to let us know exactly what is going on. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? The son of David and the son of Abraham. And we have Psalms like Psalm 72, which we'll uh, read around Christmas time or Epiphany. Psalm 72, the first verse. Give the king thy justice, O God, and thy righteousness to the royal son. Well, who is this royal son of, the, of God? It's Jesus, the king. And then it says in Psalm 72, verse 8, may he have dominion, that's kingship, from sea to sea. Not from one end of Israel to the other. No, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth universal kingship, because through the promises and the covenants to Abraham and David, God, the creator king, was going to restore his rule in the world through the fulfillment of these two promises. And Psalm 72 goes on, may the kings of Tarshish and the isles render him tribute. Remember the wise men, we read this, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Well, the wise men were prefiguring not just a one-time event, but the kingship of the whole world coming before the son of David, the son of Abraham, bowing down, rendering homage to the great king of kings. And verse 11 of Psalm 72, Psalm of David, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. 
this is what was basically the foundation of the entire New Testament. All right. Now, I want to come to a question, and it's one of these questions that we don't ask ourselves, but we sure should. And the question is this, what is the gospel? What what does even the word gospel mean? We so often define gospel, or at least have mental conceptions of it, just by our traditions. Now, I've lived a good part of my adult life as an evangelical Protestant. I've lived a good part of my adult life as a Catholic. And as an evangelical, if somebody asked me, well, Steve, what's the, what's the gospel? I said, well, that's easy. That's the message that tells people how to get saved. Now, the New Testament certainly does tell people how to get saved. But I don't think that's what the word gospel means. In fact, I'm, I would ask the question, show me in the Bible where that's how the word gospel is used. Have we ever asked ourselves, how really does the Bible itself define the word gospel? Now, if I would ask a Catholic, what's the gospel? Well, that's easy. That's the book that uh, they carry down and process at Mass, and the priest or the deacon reads out of. No, uh, the book contains the gospels. It's the living word of God, but it's, it's not a book, and it's not a plan of salvation, even though it's a great book and there's a great plan of salvation. Gospel, it's a Greek word, euangelion, that refers to announcing of good news. Now, remember that the gospel of Mark is fitting into this big picture. And in the first century, there was a Roman empire with a Caesar who was getting a little itchy. He was wanting to, if he hadn't already by the time the gospel of Mark was proclaimed, it was on the road to Caesar proclaiming himself as Lord. That means universal kingship. Now, St. Paul and the apostles had no problem with Caesar being a universal king uh, over an empire, but not the king of kings, not the ultimate authority in the world. That's where the rub really came in. Now, in the Roman Empire, guess what word was used to announce uh, the birth of a royal son or the ascension to the throne of a new Caesar? Gospel? Euangelion? Oh, and now here comes St. Peter. And remember, St. Mark is recording the preaching of St. Peter. That's what the Gospel of Mark is. It's really the Gospel of Mark and Peter. And Peter, probably being in Rome at this time, is proclaiming another gospel. And it wasn't about a Caesar baby. This was about the child of Abraham and David, destined to rule the world. Now, in the New Testament, the word gospel, including the preaching of Paul, and I'm talking to you evangelicals out there who think, well, at least Paul's epistles, that's the gospel, how to get saved. No, even Paul, the word gospel has a very specific meaning that derives from Isaiah, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 7. Remember the uh, Apollo 
moon missions and, you know, they very carefully brought the lunar module down on the moon. Boom, landing. Okay, this is where you land in the Bible to define the gospel because Isaiah was a prophet foretelling what was going to come with the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and to David. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings. And in the Greek Old Testament, which was the Septuagint, which is what Paul used when he went and evangelized the Roman Empire, the word here for the one who brings good tidings is evangelizer. It's the just noun form of the verb to evangelize or to gospelize. It's the exact same word used or root word used for gospel. And this is where it comes from. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings the gospel, who evangelizes with the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good news, who publishes salvation. Again, good tidings of good news is again the word to evangelize or to gospelize. And what is the announcement? Three words. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Your God reigns. That's the announcement of the gospel. That's the announcement of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's what went on in Acts. That's what goes on in St. Paul's epistles and other epistles, and that especially is what goes on in the book of Revelation. Your God reigns, and Caesar and his friends really didn't like to hear this thing, and we had a conflict that went on for decades, in fact, a couple of centuries, where it was a life-and-death struggle between which God is the ultimate God reigning on this earth. Now, I want to bring Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 in real quickly because a lot of my evangelical friends imagine that Paul has the gospel as far as the plan of salvation, and nowhere else is that declared clearer than in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Well, listen to this. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, St. Paul says, and how can men preach preach what? The gospel, unless they are sent. As it is written, um, and I'm just going to throw out a little question here, guess where it is written that he's referring to? It's Isaiah 52, verse 7. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful of the feet of those who are gospelizing or evangelizing. To evangelize is to announce the gospel that the sovereign God reigns, that the Creator has come. He has sent His royal Son to reign. His name is Jesus. Christ, meaning Messiah, is a word, a Jewish word for king. Jesus is the universal king. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's other dynamics involved in that, but that's the essence of what it means to announce the gospel. It's a royal announcement about Yahweh, who is king over the whole world, and he sent his son. Now, the Roman world wasn't quite ready for this, but <laughs> the 
Apostles, who were basically chickens before the day of Pentecost, got a real shot of boldness through the Holy Spirit, and then you find this. You don't have to read beyond one verse in the Gospel of Mark to start to get this. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, if God is the great king, sovereign king over all the universe, and he sends his royal son, then the announcement based on Isaiah 52, 7, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the royal son, Jesus is the king. And then a little later in the very first chapter of Mark, verse 14, we find Jesus opening his mouth. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, now what is the gospel? This is Jesus preaching the gospel. And what does he say? The time is fulfilled. What time? The time that was promised to Abraham and the time that was promised to David. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a kingdom and there's a king and it's at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. Believing in the gospel, amongst other things, I'm not saying this is the only thing, but the supreme thing is a call to all humanity to faith, obedience, and allegiance to Jesus as king. And that's what the gospel of Mark is about, and that's how the gospel of Mark fits into this big, three-act, big story. I'm not going to have time today to share with you how you fit into that story, because it is so good, it will astound you, really, what God has planned for you and I as members of his family and members of his big story. But just remember, when we talk about the gospel, it's not just about my private uh, salvation, and it's not just kind of a spiritual biography of the life and ministry of Jesus, or it's not about nice things that Jesus did, along with some nice teaching about vague moral lessons. No, 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 no. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. This is what the New Testament is about. I can summarize it in one verse from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's really past time to recover the gospel of King Jesus, to evangelize to announce the gospel is to announce that their king has come and he requires faith, repentance, obedience, and allegiance. You've been listening to episode 60 of Faith and Family. I'm your host, Steve Wood. Visit us on the web at dads.org. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.